Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Human Stories of Resilience. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today and paying my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. Hey, Susie. Hey, Steve. I've got a guest for us. That's nice. Well, it's handy, isn't it? Because otherwise it'd be a bit flat as an episode. What if we didn't have a guest? We haven't had guests for the last couple of episodes. It's just been us. What are you trying to say? I know. And they were, they were <laughs> the guests who weren't there or you and me? <laughs> I could barely listen to it myself. I don't know why we expect anybody else to put in the effort. Oh, that's terrible. What are you trying to say? I'm joking. I think we're great. I think we're great. I met a guest upon the stair, the guest who really wasn't there for the podcast of the show. I hope we have a guest this. Can't find a rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) I could see the look of panic on your face as you launched into that and realised you had nowhere to go. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the planning and this is all about the planning. Okay, who's your guest? What have you got? He's a young a young man. I'd known his dad for a couple of decades now, so at a, at, at a considerable distance. Is it a shock to you the way people's kids keep growing up and turning into adults? I know. Why wasn't I warned that this was going to happen? And on a totally other note, I went on a Vespa club ride on the weekend and there was a man on a classic Vespa, and I said, oh, that's lovely, you know, and you can tell because they've got different styling. They look older, the classic Vespas. And I said, gorgeous bike. Um, And he said, oh, yes, it's from 1991. And that feels like I was at university in 1991. I was an adult. Goodness me. Okay. So sorry for the sidetrack. No, no, it's because it is still relevant. I think I've known him for a good 20 years. So at a considerable distance, he's not somebody I've very well. I've been aware of our guest and and some of what he's gone through. And I hope there isn't a God, let me put it like that, because if there is, he's an evil, sadistic bastard and I don't want anything to do with him. Is it the priest again? (laughs) No, actually, actually it isn't. And we're not going down the religious road. It's just that... Somebody I know recently, in a very gentle and kind sort of a way, he wasn't pushing his views onto me at all, knew about my priestly background and wanted to know if I would be interested in talking about faith and things like that. And my response was to say, absolutely, I'd be really keen to. I've just got a little question for you. Children, cancer, any thoughts? And that rather drew a line in the conversation because I don't know that there's any, I haven't been made aware of any good answer to any of that. Why bad things happen. There must be theological responses to that, obviously. Yeah, to things where you can imagine that somehow humanity is to blame. You know, that if something bad happened to an adult, you can construct some sort of a story that says that in some way, you know, this is to do with the, the rottenness of humanity, but we don't make the rules. Whoever makes the rules makes the rules. And if you believe that it is God, then I think you've got some explaining to do. Okay. So is your guest 
a priest or a child with cancer? He was a child with cancer. And if it was only that, I think it would be an amazing story. Let's jump straight in. Let's meet your guest. Let's meet Liam. Liam, welcome to the Bloom Podcast. G'day, how are you going? Great to have you here. My name's Liam Toomey. I'm a paratriathlete, so I do triathlon for Australia, training to compete at the Paralympics. Actually, also a mental health ambassador for the Black Dog Institute and the Start Foundation, which is a charity for children with disabilities or limb deficiency. Yeah, I've sort of come about doing triathlon through a bit of a backwards door. Yeah, I found myself in a pretty great predicament in life at the moment. Yeah. Well, you're in a pretty great situation in life now, but that's not where you came from, is it? No, not particularly. Yeah, obviously, as a like saying a para athlete, like I'm an athlete with a disability, so I was diagnosed with cancer. I had a Ewing sarcoma in my right foot in 2001. I was just seven years old. As a result of that, I had my yeah right leg amputated below the knee that year, and my childhood experience was, I guess, a little bit different to most. How old did you say you were? I was seven, so 2001, so 20 years ago, pretty much, yeah, to the day. Wow. And was there was there a lot of treatment? There was the, the surgery or how did it unfold? Um, I did chemotherapy quite a bit for that year. I had my some stem, stem cells removed, blood transfusions, did chemo on and off for a while just to sort of negate where the, can- the cancer spreading or anything like that. And then, to be honest, actually supposedly was supposed to go in for quite a minor surgery, have the cancer removed and have some of my tibia taken out of my left leg and put into my right leg where they were taking the bone out of the area where the cancer was. And they sort of went in and realised that the cancer was probably not in the best position for them to do that and had to amputate it at that time. That's a horrible journey for anyone, let alone a small child. Look, to be honest, sounds a bit morbid, but I was realistically today pretty happy that it happened when it did. Being like I was seven, everyone who knows a kid that age is that they're fairly resilient about life and they don't really have too much time to think about things. It's just I want to go back to school, I want to hang out with my mates. I want to get back to playing with my mates at school. And (laughs) I was running on a prosthetic fairly quickly at a young age and back into things. And for the most part, seeming to be quite okay with what had happened. So I think there's definitely a better and worse age for it to happen. I think the earlier, the easier it is to adjust to it. Well, if you don't mind me saying so, Liam, that shows a remarkable ability to look on the bright side, I have to say. And having been through that as a seven-year-old, what were your teenage years like? My teenage years were fairly tough. I went to a pretty small primary school when I was when I lost my leg and was sort of surrounded by people who loved me and cared about me and I felt really safe. And then when I moved to high school, I went to quite a big school and obviously I was in year seven, so I was the smallest of the litter and the school was much bigger and, you know, there was 1,500 kids and I was the only one that was missing a leg. So I thought I stuck out a little bit, which I probably did in some respects, but not as much as I probably made a meal off it in my head. Looking back on it now, everyone's going through something in high school. Everyone has their own challenges or their own thing they're dealing with. For me, I thought mine was very in-your-face and obvious and felt a little bit less than other people and different. So I really struggled with that. It's quite hard at the time and wasn't really capable of handling it. And what did that do to you? Where did that lead Look, you? Look, so I wasn't I wasn't really at school to learn. Um, I was pretty troublesome. I got in a lot of trouble at school. I had a lot of fun at school, but I also caused a lot of trouble and got suspended a lot and was quite a troublemaker and instigator of things. And 
when I was sort of about 14 or 15, I started using drugs and alcohol, like trying, experimenting, trying drugs and alcohol. And like I thought everyone was doing. When I did that, I found this relief from my head. I didn't care that I was missing a leg, you know, because I spent so long in that sort of period of time, first few years of high school, thinking that I was different and feeling different and less than other people. But when I drank, I didn't, I didn't care about that. I just was enjoying what I was doing and I really gravitated towards that and that became my thing. You know, that's what I loved and that was my identity and what I sort of ran with for, yeah, quite some time. I've heard before of people say that alcohol or another substance helped to relieve what was going on in their head. But for those who don't know, tell us, what is that like? What does it relieve, Liam? I think for me, I'm a fair bit of a thinker, an overthinker and always thinking about things and questioning things. And as a result, when I drank or took drugs, like, that stopped. All the head noise really stopped for me. And I didn't, I wasn't worried about it. I just wanted to continue to take that. And I'm a pretty like obsessive and compulsive person by nature. And finding something that was fairly addictive and enjoyable, I just put everything into that. All my energy went into that. And it really consumed me. I have to be honest, like in some respects, I had heaps of fun. <laughs> I had heaps of fun in some time, at, like early on and here and there. But the pain of it all in the end was not worth what I was doing to myself. Well, you know, we've called this series The Moment I Knew. Tell us yours. Yeah, so I obviously started yeah, started taking drugs when I was about 14 or 15. And I had a string of issues when I was a teenager. I spent a lot of time, unfortunately, in and out of going to court for you know minor things or major things and using drugs and doing the wrong thing and ruining my relationships with my friends and family and the people around me and sort of people that cared about me were distancing themselves. And I'd had a string of sort of issues when I left school, about 18 to 21, where I'd lost all direction and sort of purpose. And all I did was think about taking drugs. Like there was no other sort of spot for me. And I'd gone to rehab a few times, purely just to sort of pick a box and try and get a bit of a breather from myself. And I was never sort of willing to try and do anything properly. I just wanted to act like I was all good. And I was about 21 and my life had got really bad. I was using drugs, yeah, pretty obsessively. And my life had capitulated in pretty much every way, shape and form. I'd sort of fallen into like a drug-induced psychosis really and it had been going on for quite a few weeks. And I wasn't aware, like I didn't know what that was at the time. I just knew I didn't feel like myself and I didn't really trust what my head was telling me. Um, Yeah, I had a bit of like an episode almost, I guess, and... Yeah, lost all sense of reality. Like all, you know, like it had no real, like touch with reality at all. I just sort of woke up the next day afterwards, and I was at home and I was sleeping in the spare room because I'd sort of tried to board up the house and done a whole range of yeah bizarre things, especially in front of my family as well. I just remember sort of waking up and thinking, I don't ever want to feel like this again. To wake up filled with shame and remorse and guilt and self-loathing and just have no respect for myself. It was just. It was a horrible feeling that I had unfortunately endured for quite some time by choice, you know, because I wasn't willing to take responsibility for my life. And, yeah, that I, that morning is probably the biggest thing for me, that I woke up and despite what was going on around me, I actually didn't want to use drugs for once. Like it didn't seem like it was going to fix anything. It was only going to make matters worse for me. And that was probably... I guess my first big shift and sort of moment of truth there. Do you feel lucky that 
I mean, I don't know what happened after that and if that was actually the start of you getting yourself off the drugs, but you had that moment and it wasn't telling you this is terrible, go take more drugs. It was telling you this is terrible, got to stop, got to change. What do you think made it shift like that? I think I sort of just got to a point that I realised, yeah, I do actually feel lucky that it happened. I think sometimes there's a level of, for me at least, like hitting a rock bottom and I was definitely well and truly there at that point. I think I've used drugs maybe once after that. I pretty much haven't used drugs since then and that was about six and a half years ago. And I just guess I realised I just was causing so much damage around me. I think for anyone that takes drugs the same way I do and does that, it's all about me. It's all about how hard my life is and how challenging things are for me and everything that's going on for me. And I never took a second to realise how much I was affecting other people. It was so self-indulgent. My behaviour was, oh, it's all about me. My family just need to leave me alone because it's all about me. I just want to do what I need to do. I'm an adult. To have that bring it home and behave the way I did, I guess, in front of my family who I care about more than anything and who had supported me through quite a lot, had to deal with quite a lot of my behaviour that which really wasn't acceptable was, um, yeah, something that I didn't feel very proud of. I was 21 and I'd done nothing with my life. I had every opportunity to. I had all the capabilities of it and I had just pretty much chosen not to. I'd just chosen to really lower my standards and set the bar really low for myself. Liam, you mentioned that phrase, rock bottom. But how do you go about pulling yourself out of that? I mean, you must have presumably broken faith with your family so many times that you didn't have any credit left. So how did you go about it? Yeah, it's really tough. At that point, I'd sort of lost all bargaining chips with my parents, and obviously, which is to be expected. You look at it now as lucky, but I was at that point unlucky enough to be arrested and a police officer just sort of almost felt a bit of pity for me because of the state I was in, like how drug affected I was. And I was already, already had some sort of bail conditions and sort of stuff going on in my life. And being arrested didn't help that situation. And he pretty much just said, if I go do a detox, I won't get charged for what he's arresting me for. And I'll just take me home and just sort your life out, mate. You got a chance here. At the time, I was filthy about it. I thought, oh, I've got to go do this now again. When I followed through with it, which was a few weeks later after I sort of had a bit of an episode, I didn't believe for a second that I was going to stay clean for longer than I had to at that facility. Like I thought I was going to go in. Like I'd had that rock bottom moment where I'd had that shift and I woke up and I didn't want to feel like that. But that changes very quickly. Like it's very deceptive. A week later, when I haven't taken any drugs and I feel healthy and I've eaten and I've slept and I've showered and done a few little good things, a bit of housekeeping, a bit of general housekeeping, I realize that I start to think like, oh, I'm all good. It's very deceptive to think that I'm able to control how I behave again. I was just lucky enough that I was sort of still roped into having to go to this this detox. And I went and I didn't believe I was going to stay clean for any longer than I had to. I just luckily enough was there and just saw people that were happy and weren't taking drugs and just sort of thought, just give it a go. What's the worst thing that can happen? Life realistically, it could have got a lot worse, but it could get a lot better quite easier. And I was just so resistant to the change because my life had forever been do the wrong thing, take drugs, be dishonest, be distrustful. And yeah, to have that shift was really hard. That was my identity. And that was all I thought I was good at or capable of. And then you became an athlete. How <laughs> that's that didn't happen overnight. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fair bit of a shift, obviously, as well. Like to be honest, I didn't think I had much sporting talent at high school, and I wasn't really too interested in that anyway. 
when I got clean, I sort of, yeah, went from one sort of detox facility to another sort of long-term living accommodation up in Sydney for about 12 months. And they obviously understand the benefits for like mental health and physical activity and people trying to create a good routine and a healthy habits. So involve things like getting up and making your bed and cleaning the house and daily exercise and going for a walk and stuff like that. Because I obviously, yeah, an amputee and use a prosthetic, I'd had some fairly ongoing issues with my stump and the leg I was wearing because I didn't look after myself. I didn't take care of myself physically. So when I got clean, I still sort of carried those issues with me. The place we were staying at was right next to a local pool and a few of the boys that had other injuries or niggles and couldn't really do the other exercise went to the pool a couple of days a week and I went there with them and at the time like while I was trying to get fit I was very unfit despite having cancer at seven I smoked cigarettes and you know all kinds of stuff from you know about 14 to 21 so I didn't really have the lung capacity to swimmer at that point but I um, went to the pool with these guys and I sort of got in the water and I was always so self-conscious about being an amputee. You know, I didn't want to be associated with other people who were missing limbs or in the same sort of area. Just wanted to pretend like it wasn't there and it wasn't an issue for me. and I was all good. When I sort of started working on myself and go to these detox, you obviously have to talk about things that are challenging for you. And that was my elephant in the room, something I hadn't really dealt with or looked at. And this is 15 years down the track and starting to get a bit heavy to carry. So I started working on it, speaking about it with a psychologist and friends and people I cared about and trusted. And I eventually realized that no one actually cared that I was missing a leg at all. Like it, it didn't add or minus any value to my life or who I was as a person. Generally, people didn't like that I wasn't a nice person <laughs> and my behavior wasn't acceptable. The other stuff didn't matter at all. That didn't matter at all. It just mattered to me. Because I did this stuff, I started to actually get a bit of self-confidence about myself, I guess physically and yeah, mentally. That all tied in perfectly with going swimming. For me, the swimming meant taking my leg off because obviously, yeah, you can't really swim with a, with a really heavy prosthetic <laughs> that doesn't kick or do anything. It's just a weight dragging you down. And I took my leg off, got in the pool and swam a lap and nearly died from how unfit I was but the feeling of being in the water feeling free physically and mentally and just not being concerned what anyone around me thought of me was an experience I guess I hadn't really had for a long time or made much sense of and that I guess in turn is another point where my life changed and I took a bit of the power back about how I felt about myself and realized I need I guess take responsibility and own who I am as a person physically and mentally and realize I can do a lot more than I sort of had set for myself. I guess there's something powerfully symbolic about going into water and rediscovering, well, perhaps discovering yourself for the first time. How do you think about it? Yeah, I'd say probably for the first time. I'd spent so much of my teenage years full of bravado and trying to be something else that I wasn't and acting like I was this tough guy when I was so far from I was just a young boy who was really afraid of anyone sort of finding out who I was. So I just acted a certain way, behaved a certain way. So when I when I got in the water, like just all vanished. You know, I wasn't swimming like Ian Thorpe at that point. Like I was, you know, the lifeguard was worried about me, I think. And I was managing to like, enjoy myself though it was just something to test myself physically and mentally and push myself that's where I, my life started again from that point you know I got to race I got to hit the restart button on my life at about 22 and it's not something that everyone gets a chance to do so I'm really lucky for sort of what's happened for me you're an athlete what does that look like yeah so I bumbled around trying to find the right sport for me when I started swimming I thought oh I'll try and go to the Paralympics it couldn't be that hard could it and <laughs> Yeah, 
worked out that unfortunately it's probably a lot harder than I gave. I was naively thinking it was quite easy to just roll on in. And I did a bit of swimming for a while, but yeah, I wasn't anywhere in the realm of where I needed to be to do that. I was just lucky enough to get involved with a charity that had a few triathletes in it and yeah, meet someone else who had been to the Rio Paralympics, the triathlon, and they all were very, very pushy about me doing triathlon. I sort of said to them, like, I, I don't run, I don't own a bike. I like swimming, but the other stuff, you can leave that at the door. Yeah, they just pushed me into doing it against all my better judgment. I did the race and I was shocking and slow and had no idea what I was doing, but I liked it and the community was fun and enjoyable and it wasn't an experience I'd had doing other sport and I just sort of went with it from there and thought I'll give this a go and, yeah, have sort of put all my eggs in that basket, I guess. Like I've moved back to Melbourne to be with an elite squad and train professionally, I guess, like at an elite level and like professionally doesn't mean I'm not working and doing other things, but (laughs) it requires, I guess, a certain level of discipline and like behaviour and responsibility for like how I act. It's been a steep learning learning curve for me, but I'm really like, I love it. You know, I love what I get to do and I'm really passionate about sport and all the doors it's opened for me as a person and like professionally and being an athlete's not who I am as a whole but it has created so much opportunity for me. So, yeah, I love it a lot. I'm sitting here thinking, what a life story. You've gone from cancer to drugs to being an elite athlete and you're, what are you, 26, something like that. So what's next? Yeah, I'm not sure at the moment. Yeah, I have. um, I've ticked a few adversity boxes by now, which is um, looking back when when it all happened, I guess I thought I was pretty ripped off. But to be honest, these days I'm very grateful for like the experiences I have. And it gives me a lot of opportunity to do things in life. I'm yeah doing triathlon full time at the, as much as I can at the moment with the goal to hopefully go to the Paralympics in Paris in 2024 and beyond. Being 27 bodes in my favour doing a endurance sport that I hopefully have a little bit of time left in me for it. I'm really lucky I get to do through like the Australian Institute of Sport. I get to speak to high school students about mental health and a mental fitness program I do through the Black Dog Institute as well. The biggest thing for me, like like I said, I love doing triathlon and um, everything that comes with that as an athlete and getting to travel the world and represent Australia and everything. But the joy of getting to speak to people and share my experience and my struggles and my triumphs and everything that comes with that is something I really enjoy. And it's, I guess, for me, become a bit of a vocation. Like it's work, but it doesn't feel like work at all in any respect. I just turn up and I love to do it. I'm really lucky. I like talking about myself and Um, I think I could string a few words together here and there. So I'm really pushing to make that the next chapter of my life to help fund what I do as an athlete because I think there's, especially given everything that's happening in the world, mental health is such a big deal, whether it's being diagnosed with the condition or just your general mental health in any capacity. Everyone can benefit from doing things that will help their mental health. I kind of got mixed emotions here really because part of me is thinking about the way that we nearly lost such a big chunk of human potential, not just you, but many people like you that came so close to not realizing what they were capable of. So there's that part, but also a sense that you found meaning in your life, a goal, a purpose, a mission, which many people, perhaps even most people never come close to realizing, even without going through everything that you went through. I'm definitely one of the lucky ones. I'm very grateful for my life and the opportunities I've had and to be able to sort of change things completely. 
I'm still the same person in a lot of ways to who I was when I used to take drugs and all the things I did. Still like the same kind of music and the same type of clothes and eat the same type of food to a degree. Talk about the same similar things with my mates. On another level, like I'm <laughs> nowhere near that person. Completely different in every way. It's funny because I do feel like periods of my life that a bit of imposter syndrome, this is where I'm at in life. It's shocking to think that I'm here sometimes and that I've had these opportunities because my life was not in a position where it was going anywhere well when I got clean. You know, I'd really sort of reached the end, what I think to be like metaphorically the end of the road for me to change my ways or look at things differently. And a lot of people don't get that opportunity. A lot of people are stuck doing the same thing, You're stuck in jail or dying from taking drugs. And it's a very small percentage of people that I guess get to have an opportunity to change and do change and find this relief and just like joy for life that I think we're all lacking. So how can we follow your story, Liam? How can we find out what you're up to and where you're headed I'm not too big on social media, but generally my Instagram's pretty up to date. At, um, so it's at toomey.liam. And I've got a website as well at teamtoomey.com.au, which has you know regular sort of blogs when I'm racing and competing, which hasn't been for a while due to COVID, unfortunately. I've got a good rap because my story has changed a lot and I've been in a pretty dark place and now I'm not. But in my own eyes, I'm not anything too extraordinary. I'm just a general bloke who's just managed to be lucky enough to get out of where I was at and change things and I think that anyone whether it doesn't have to be specifically about overcoming having a, a drug addiction or anything like that or mental health people are always able to change we get so caught up in who we are and what we're stuck with that it's really easy to think that this is what I'm going to do and this is who I am but there's so many opportunities to push ourselves and challenge ourselves to sort of grow and change and evolve and learn a lot of things about ourselves that I am um, I'm really lucky to guess I guess be surrounded by people like that and see what I can do in life I really enjoy that. And yeah, I guess for me, without plugging myself too much, like I'd love to, you know, anyone that listens that wants to have me in an event or speak or anything like that, like that's what I do. Like that's my thing. You know, I love it. <laughs> I get so much meaning and purpose out of it that for me more so I benefit more than the school kids I speak at schools at. I like that I can share my experience. But for me, if it resonates with one kid out of a thousand at a school, that's the important thing because I never listened to that stuff when I was at school. We never had that opportunity to talk about mental health or anything like that. And I probably wouldn't have been very open to it at the time, but it's nice to know that the option's there. Realising that people are going through so much and trying to be kind to people, it's pretty important. Well, Liam, thank you so much for sharing your astonishing story with us. My pleasure. So much indeed. It's really nice to hear your story. And there are so many things in what you've just told us that could have just set you down forever. And isn't that fantastic that you're not just rising above, but also looking to take other people with you and looking to share. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.
you know, I suppose it's not that unusual in, in each of its constituent parts, but you put them together and you hear it from someone who's been through it for themselves. It's yet another extraordinary, ordinary story. Perhaps everyone has one. Maybe not that extraordinary. Surely everyone has a story. I've got hundreds. Yeah, what do you have? You have. And then in this episode, suddenly you unveiled your Vespa fetish, which was, you know, probably news to most people. Possibly true. Yes, I ride a very nice duck egg blue, Tiffany blue Vespa along the beach. Not on the sand, I hope. No, it's very slippy, actually, sand and Vespas, even on concrete. Thinking a little bit about Liam and what he's been through. So I just read Catherine Devaney's memoir. I don't know if you know her. She's a mm. um, prominent Melbourneian, I suppose. And her memoir, True North, is out. Great read. Highly recommended. One of the things she talks about is drive and activity. So it made me think about really what makes some people ambitious and driven and others not ambitious or not driven. Is it family background? Is it something innate? So I even have a quote from Catherine Devaney's excellent memoir. Frantic activity is a common response to stress and lack of control. Alex, my shrink, once said, to cope with the depressed condition of your childhood, you developed or uncovered a switch to activate into a busyness, a productiveness, filling your schedule up to distract and exhaust yourself so you could stave off depression and rumination. She's a lovely writer too. She is a lovely writer. That's that's a beautiful quote. Do you agree with that, that activity is a common response to stress? I honestly don't know. The, the difficulty that I have with that is that Catherine is an experiment with no control. You know, there's no other Catherine who didn't go through this. And how do we know that she mightn't have ended up the same way? I think there is something appealing in the idea that such people who are so driven and have to be busy all of the time, that there is something, I was going to say wrong with them. I don't mean wrong with them, but that they are responding to a trauma or that they are having to keep busy to stave off the possibility of you know, other things leaking in. But I just don't know how you know. How, do you, how would you go about proving that? And then other people stave off depression and rumination, I'm sure, by keeping not busy, by uh, lying on the sofa and reading books. Yeah, or, or as Liam may have done, you know, immersing themselves in things that dull the pain. Liam sort of has displayed both the different behaviours, you know, he's he's taken the destructive route and then through a what we might think of as a fortunate accident, he discovered something that was a much more productive, enjoyable, satisfying way to um, to occupy himself. There's a commonality there. I mean, in both activities, he's uh, he's really thrown himself into it and he's he's the top of the pile for both activities. You've shared your Vespa fetish, so I'm going to share again my Springsteen fetish. He's someone who's quite openly discussed his mental health and severe depression, but he says that one of the things that drives him to perform each night for three hours and give every last ounce of his energy and ability is that for that period, at least, he's at peace because he's, his mind is so full. I certainly remember having clients who tell me this, you know, that, that it's whether it's windsurfing or rock climbing, you know, where you, you don't have the option to tune out because it requires all of your attention, at least for that time, then you've got some peace from whatever it is that's eating away at you. 
I agree with that, actually. I find that about myself. I mean, I'm really bad at yoga because I'm there stretching and trying to focus and my brain is thinking, oh, I haven't sent that email. Oh, I must send that email. I wonder if it's really in the spreadsheet. Let me double check that. I'll have to make a note to double check that when I stop having to do this downward dog, <laughs> right? That's that's me doing yoga. It's it's terrible. But actually riding a Vespa, because although you're you're on your own and there's the, the road in front of you, but you've got to be focused focusing on what you're doing so you don't die. And also the last year or so I've taken up running. I find running as well, it just requires so much concentration to breathe. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm, I mean, we could call it running. I could call it shuffling as well. It doesn't leave my mind with these great gaps of space that emails and spreadsheets dash into to fill up. This is really, it's really powerful. And to listen to Catherine describing it in her own experience, what bothers me is when it becomes a prescription. You know, it worked for me. So therefore, I'm going to tell other people that that's what they should do. It's like autobiographies of billionaires. You know, they tell you their recipe for success. Well, it just happens to be what they did that ended up with them being billionaires. It's not a recipe for success. It just happens to be one route through that worked for one particular person. What works for one person works for one person. <laughs> yes, nicely put. I remember the, um, I might have mentioned this before, the psychologist that the state of Victoria has used for natural disasters, Rob Gordon, said that everything works for somebody and there's something that works for everybody. He probably put it better than that. But do you know what I mean? That we should not poo-poo things that we deride as being unscientific or, you know, silly because they, they don't appeal to our scientific and serious frame of mind. Well, if it works for people, you know, where's the harm? Why shouldn't they use the thing that they find works for them? And we can use our thing. There's plenty of room for everybody. And that's a good approach, not just for trauma, actually, but, you know, life. Well, I shall follow Liam's story with great interest. We hope to see him in the, in the triathlon at the Paralympics sometime. I get the feeling after he's won the triathlon Paralympics, he'll... I don't know, he'll pop up again as the Prime Minister or something. He seems like someone who's going to have a life after life after life and always rise to the top. Shh. You realise he might still be listening to this, actually, don't you? We don't want him getting big-headed. <laughs> <laughs>